Well, I want to minister tonight concerning what I'm going to call the nativity personalities. Every year as a pastor, uh, your job is to minister along the lines of the gospel and the birth of Christ and to, to do it well. And the challenge of the preacher is to come up with something new every year to try to keep it alive. And somebody said, well, you could preach the same thing last year, but we wouldn't remember it until we heard it. And then we remembered it. And then we'd say, oh, you preached this last year. And then it would be a good thing that we remembered it because we probably needed to hear it again. (laughs) But I, I like the challenge of preaching the gospel from the nativity as many different ways as possible. So I'm going to call this message tonight just the nativity personalities, because at the birth of Christ, you see a lot of different people interacting with the Messiah and the gospel and the word and the plan and the the divine advent of God. And they don't all interact with him the same. And yet you see those same kind of personalities present in the earth today, maybe even present with us tonight, maybe in you, maybe in your own home, we might have these seven or eight different personalities present. And there's something interesting about uh, the birth of Christ and what we call the nativity story or theology calls it the first advent. Advent means appearing So the birth of Christ is considered the first advent or the first appearing of God or Christ. And then the second advent will be his return or the resurrection. But it seems to me, and probably you would testify in your own life, it's easier to believe and trust in the promises of God when they're still off in the future. The prophecies of God, the promises of God... It's easy to believe in the rapture with it off in the future. It's maybe easy to believe in the resurrection of the dead when it's off in the future. Or even any prophecy of revival or second, second movement of God in our lifetime. But what really is the measure of a person's faith is how they act when it starts happening now. So all the promises of God, the Bible tells us of the men and women in Hebrews, that these men and women saw the promises of God, were persuaded of them, saw them afar off and embraced them. And it kind of lends itself to to cause one to believe maybe if they were living in the day of it, they wouldn't have had such strong faith. Uh, And that should cause us to pause and challenge. It's easy to be excited about God's future until it means we got to do something today. And we being a charismatic church and Pentecostals, we like prophecies and we like the hope of the future. But I think we just like to collect those prophecies and those Bible promises and put them on a mantle and just say, yay. Yay, I believe it, except all the plans and promises of God are now, and they are yes and amen. They require action today, and they require us to do something about it today. And so with this promise of Messiah, first given in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, when God says uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head, but you'll bruise his heel, that was the first promise of the Messiah. And then we had the promises of the Passover meal, the types and shadows of Moses' law that foretold of Christ coming. And then Balaam, the prophet, prophesying about a scepter coming out of Jacob. And then more prophecies about the Messiah coming in the prophecies of David, who was himself a type and shadow of Christ. And then the prophets, Isaiah especially, prophesied heavily. And Daniel prophesied of Christ coming. And these promises are easy to believe when they're still off in the future. And yet the New Testament clearly teaches us that now faith is. Hebrews 11 says, now faith is substance. It's the substance of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things not seen. And 2 Corinthians tell us now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And so what this means for us today as believers is that whatever God's word says, we don't believe in it for tomorrow. We believe in it for today. 
That's what faith is. It is today. It's not something you activate tomorrow. You activate all the promises and all the hopes and, and blessings and prophecies of God today. Otherwise, it's just kind of, it's theoretical. We don't need theoretical Christianity. We need straight applicable. What is what we call boots on the field, boots on the ground, rubber meets the road, pedal to the metal. That's the kind of Christianity we need. We don't need to just collect more knowledge or collect more information or collect more doctrine. Nothing wrong with it until you don't do anything with it. Then there's a lot wrong with it because the collection of doctrine and the collection of more teaching without ever applying it, the Bible says, is instant self-deception. And so we kind of see these things happen over the the nativity story, which starts from uh, the Lord appearing to the Virgin Mary and concluding with the return from Egypt because then we lose track of the Christ child until he's 13 years old and his dad, Joseph, takes him to Jerusalem to experience the Passover, which I've always marveled. Here we have the Passover lamb being taken by his daddy to experience the Passover lamb. And I wonder if at that moment, the Christ child, Jesus, a teenage boy now realizes, this is me. This is what I'm to fulfill. At some point, he came into that knowledge of who he was, but that's a sermon for another time. Our first personality we want to consider, nativity personality, is that of Simeon. Simeon is someone in the nativity story who often gets overlooked. We're we're often looking at the shepherds and the angels and the Virgin Mary, and we're often looking at wise men. But Simeon knew about all this before anybody else did. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but if you have a Bible, you can. In Luke chapter 2, when they have brought the child Jesus at eight days old into the temple to be dedicated and to be named, an old man named Simeon is there. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here we have a man who is old. He's not a prophet, not a priest, not a rabbi, not a scribe, not a Pharisee. He's just a believer in God, an old man, a devout man, a holy man that walks with God. And he didn't need a calling to have the Spirit of God come upon him. He just walked with God. He longed for the consolation of Israel. That is redemption. That was a prophecy they'd had since Genesis 2 and 3 and was built every successive prophet and and king who prophesied about it. It was a well-established doctrine that the Messiah is coming. This man craved it. And if he hadn't seen it, he'd have been in the hall of faith with the rest of them where it said these were all persuaded and had seen and had embraced and saw them afar off. But this man so desperately wanted it, he actually got to see it. The Holy Ghost reveals to Simeon, even before he reveals it to Mary, that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. We don't know how old he was when he heard this, but it tells it's kind of retrospective. Before before any of this, he had a knowledge he was going to get to see the Christ child before he died. And he came by the Spirit, verse 27, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He held a baby and said, my eyes have seen your salvation, wrapped up in a little eight-year-old, eight-day-old child. So I call this man, I call him the devout who walks with God. 
That's one of our personality types. The devout who walks with God no matter what. In revival, out of revival. The devout that walks with God, whether you see the promise or not. This is a good personality type to be. Because you never know when you might get to walk into the temple and hold the Christ child. But I guarantee you, when he was 30 years old, serving God, he didn't expect to see the Christ child. He just believed that he might. Amen. We don't have time to tarry there because we have eight total personalities we got to cover quickly because I promised you we would be out in one hour. Number two is Mary. Mary's our second nativity personality, and she probably is the most famous of all of them. We all want to be like her. In Luke chapter one, if you come back a little bit, we have the angel Gabriel appearing to her. Gabriel is Israel's angel. The book of Daniel tells us so. Apparently, nations have a senior angel assigned to them for their well-being and protection. Gabriel is named in Daniel, and he shows up again 400 years later with the birth of Christ. He appears to this virgin who would have been 13 or 14 years old, if you can imagine that. And he begins to tell her, Fear not, Mary, verse 30, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, which, by the way, was a very common name in those days. Jesus in the Greek is the same as Joshua. In the Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And so it just depends on what language you're speaking, whether it's Jesus or Joshua. So to the Hebrew, if you say Joshua, it's just like us hearing Jesus. Very common name. So it's not that there's anything special about the name because it was a common name, but it's that he was obedient and therefore his name is the name above all names. Uh, you know, Jesus is a very common name in the Hispanic com communities of Latin America. There's no power in their name. Their name didn't die, nor was it resurrected from the dead. But in the authority of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, boy, we can do a lot for God. And you'll call his name Jesus, and he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He's quoting Isaiah there. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Verse 38, perhaps one of the most famous verses of the nativity story. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Behold your servant, O God. Be it unto me according to your word. Now, you got to think about this. Her mind does not begin to populate the, how's this going to be? What about the law? What are people going to think? She's going to be pregnant outside of wedlock, which under the law was punishable by stoning. Under the law, if you were not a virgin betrothed and you said you were and your husband found out you were not, you were stoned for it. Fornication, you were stoned for. She's going to grow a baby's in her belly without ever knowing a man and walk around with that stigma. And none of this ever crosses her mind that this might be a problem. She knows that she's going to have to explain it to Joseph. She doesn't ask questions about that. What's he going to do? How's he going to react? You're going to have to talk to him. Is he going to dump me? Because under the law, he had every right to divorce her, which is exactly what he was trying to do when the angel appeared to him and said, don't do this. And he had every right to because under his assumption, she's been unfaithful to him. But she doesn't ask any of these questions. What are my mom and dad going to think? What's the village going to think? What's Joseph going to do? What, how am I going to care for this baby? All she says is, 
be it unto me according to the word of the Lord. So with our second personality, we just call this childlike faith. Yes, Lord, nevertheless, according to your word, be it done unto me. We need to be like that too. Our number three nativity personality is Joseph. Go to Matthew chapter one. I think last Christmas Eve I taught on Joseph probably being the reason Mary was selected. We often heavily emphasize Mary, but we forget that God works through the chain of command. And God, after this moment with Mary, God never speaks to Mary again. Everything is done through Joseph. And Joseph keeps the law. And Joseph keeps the law. And Joseph keeps the law. And Joseph obeys the angel. And Joseph obeys the dream. And Joseph obeys the warning. Because God deals with the head of household. Joseph is often just kind of relegated to the nativity story, but there's about eight or nine times in the nativity story where it talks about, and they kept the law, and it was all Joseph who was doing it. Why did they go to the temple on the eighth day? To keep the law. Why did they offer the turtle loves? To keep the law. Why was he circumcised the eighth day? To keep the law. Why did they go to the Passover at 13? To keep the law. All of these things were because Joseph knew the law. He was an honorable and just man. And I'm convinced pretty strongly, you'd have a hard time disagreeing with me, that Mary might have been selected because of who she was engaged to. Because not to be disparaging, but uh, holy virgins are common in Israel in this day, but not upright men who will fear God and obey. Because the father raises the children and trains them in the law of God according to the law of God. So Joseph, we look at him in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when uh, as his mother Mary was espoused or engaged, which is a little more complicated than our engagement. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a upright man and not willing to make her a public example, was mindful to divorce her privately. The Bible calls him upright for divorcing her because he had every right to under the law. She's pregnant. They're not married. She's been unfaithful. She has every right to. She can, he can call for a public scrutiny, but being a holy man, he doesn't want to embarrass her because he does love her. But think about his emotions. I have prepared a place. I have given everything for this girl, and she goes and does this thing to me. And who is the guy? What are his emotions doing? And yet he's obeying the law. And not just the law, he's cutting out his emotions. He's going to obey the law honorably. Not going to make a public spectacle. He's going to obey Deuteronomy 24. He's going to put her away and just let it kind of disappear so she's not ashamed or embarrassed because he does love her. That's what he's going to do. Verse 20, but while he thought on these things, because God does know your thoughts and the meditations of your heart, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which is being interpreted God with us. And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So from Joseph, we call him the honorable man of obedience. He's going to obey the law no matter what. When the gospel is brought to him, when the news of the Messiah is brought to him, when the word, the vision, the plan of God is brought to him, he instantly takes it to the word first because it doesn't make sense to him, which is what we ought to all do. It's a lot like the noble Bereans in the book of Acts. They were hearing the gospel, but they'd never heard it like this before. So they didn't criticize Paul. They went home and studied their Bible for themselves to see if they could find it in the word. That's what we see in this noble Joseph. He was a man of obedience. He was going to obey the law even if it meant losing his wife. And yet the angel said, no, no, this is different. She's exempt because this is not a man's doing. This is God's doing. He doesn't ask questions. He doesn't say, huh, huh, why, why, what, what? What are people going to think? This is, this is complicated. He just obeys. So we call him the humble man of obedience. Our fourth one, Luke chapter 2 our fourth nativity personality, our fourth person in the nativity to come into contact with the Christ child, with the, the movement of God. This is what we call the Advent revival. The fourth personality, and this is a lot of folks, I must say. The first three we've looked at aren't enough of us. This fourth one is too many of us. And by us, I mean Westerners. Luke chapter 2, we call this the innkeeper. Verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That means there was an innkeeper who turned them away. Now, what kind of gentleman can look at a woman in labor and say, can't help you? What kind of gentleman can see a woman greatly in labor pains having contractions. Her husband, I'm sure, said, we need a place to stay. I know all the rooms are full because it's the census time. It's time to be taxed by Caesar. Can, can, you, can you help us? I got nothing. Do you have a bed? I've got nothing. Can I have your bed? You can't have my bed. I have nothing. I do have a manger out back. I have a stall for some cattle. Will that work for you? What kind of person looks at a pregnant woman who's in labor and says, I can't help you? Go sleep with the cattle. So we have to conjecture here. I have to conjecture. We can't say emphatically or doctrinally, but I conject this, and this is some of my wife's teaching. I like it. He either doesn't see her pregnancy or he just doesn't care. And that would describe many people in the West, in America today. They hear Jesus, and they either don't see him or they just don't care. They see the movement of God, they hear the gospel, and they just either have eyes that can't see or they just don't care. I call him the oblivious busybody. That's his personality type, the oblivious busybody, the son of God. The salvation of God is in his in, and he has nothing to do for it. He has nothing to do with it. He's just oblivious, just a busybody coming and going. Martha would fulfill this later. Jesus is in her presence, and she's busy about so many other things, coming and going, coming and going. Can't even enjoy what God is doing. Just a busybody, frantic. This man is an oblivious busybody who, I'm sorry, my rooms are full. I'm making my money. It's a good season for me. Can't help you. 
not even with all the money he's making from everybody who's staying in his hotel. This is a lot of folks in the West, too consumed with their life to see the life of God in front of them. Too consumed with what they think is important to see what God says is important. And so we don't ever get to know much about this man because he's not worth mentioning. Number six, excuse me, number five, also in Luke chapter two, the shepherds. Luke chapter two, verse eight, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. These guys are busy too, doing their job. One's a busy innkeeper, others are busy sheep keepers. And sheep need a lot of attention. And they're doing it at nighttime because that's when wolves come and that's when things are done and you have to be extra vigilant at night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you uh, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with a the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us now go into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste. They were not bothered by this Messiah, this Advent, this message from God, this prophecy, this movement of God, however we want to principalize it, they were so excited. They said, praise God, something different to do. At the very least, my life just caught value. My life just found purpose. My life is now worth something. The Lord has appeared to lowly shepherds. What about the wolves? I don't care about the wolves. God was just born. Let's go visit them. Hopefully the angels can take care of the sheep. We'll go take care of the Christ child. And so they came and made haste. So I call these folks the humble hungry. Shepherds were lowly people, but yet they were hungry. And Corinthians confirms this, that not many wise, not many rich, not many powerful are saved. But he gives grace to the humble, grace to the lowly. He gives power to the weak. That innkeeper was making a killing that season. These guys smelled like sheep. It's cold. It's nighttime. What have they got to lose? We call them the humble hungry. We ought to all be that no matter how rich we get. But what is so wonderful, that's number five. Number six juxtaposes these lowly shepherds with rich wise men. You have find them in um, Matthew chapter two. We're back, bouncing back and forth. Our nativity story is carried in Matthew and Luke we got two more after this. We're almost done. Then communion and then uh, offering. And then it's Christmas Eve with family. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. <laughs> and these men... Uh, theology and history conjects very strongly that these were descendants from the school of Daniel in Babylon. Daniel received all the prophecy and all the timeline when Christ, Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, Daniel says, after these generations, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off. 
these men were watching the stars, keeping track of those generations, which tells us that Daniel's school taught this legacy season after season after season for 430 years. Our seminaries in America originally 430 years ago were Yale, not a seminary. Harvard, not a seminary anymore. Princeton, not a seminary. If, if America was entrusted with keeping up with the time of Messiah coming, it'd be lost. But if you hadn't noticed, America is lost. Our first prominent schools were all seminaries, and not a one of them stands as a seminary anymore. They've all gone totally secular, pagan. They are bastions of hatred and mockery towards the Christian faith. They don't even deserve their history anymore. But these wise men are held to be descendants of Daniel's school of theology, if you will, because not everybody came out of Babylon. Not everybody came out of Persia when they could with Zerubbabel or Ezra or Nehemiah. Some chose to stay. Some of these may not have even been Jews. They may have just been Semites, Middle Easterners, Africans who just wanted to know, and they were caught up in the school of Daniel that were keeping tabs on the stars and the astro charts because they rotate and keep seasons and times. That's what Genesis 1 says. He made the stars for times and seasons. We've come. We know he's been born. We've watched the cycles now. It's fulfilled Daniel's prophecy. Where is he? And yet what I call these guys... I'm going to say the, the descendants of Daniel's ministry, generations keeping time for the Lord's advent, they sought out the plan of God at much cost and inconvenience. They had been gone two years looking for him. Two years. Because they, Herod asks, when did you first see the sign? They said, two years ago. You know, as soon as the star rose around to be in its season, they said, that's it, Go. They had to get everything together. Maybe took a couple weeks or a couple months to plan. They've been gone at least two years. Left their wives, their children, their businesses. Not just the gold, frankincense, and myrrh as a cost to bring as an offering. The cost to be gone that long. The cost to supply their caravan, their train of camels. And these men have come. This is not a convenient thing for them. This isn't a five-minute commute to church or a Ustream video when you miss church. They want this Christ child, and they want him bad. And all they've come to do is to give and to worship. They want nothing in return. And we could stop and say law on that for a while. They came to church to give and to worship, not to take. They brought an offering, and they brought worship. And when they presented the offering and the worship, they turned around and went home. That's it. That's the whole story. They saw it. They were responsible for keeping it alive. And they fulfilled their destiny 400 years later. It's generational parenting right there. That's keeping a generational vision for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I call these the generationally hungry. The, the nativity personality that teaches your kids to be as hungry for God as you are. One of the things we pray every night over our kids is that they catch our heart and vision for God. They catch our heart and vision for ministry. They don't just learn to go to church. They catch what the kingdom is all about. Amen. Number seven, our seventh personality, we find them in the chief priests and scribes there in Matthew chapter two. We'll continue reading in verse three. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, 
he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, Well, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. These chief priests and scribes, the second they're asked, they know instantly where Messiah is born. Why weren't they looking? Their faith was pure theory. They were a people of the, of the letter, but not of the spirit. They knew the word. They quoted it. But they didn't go with the wise men to fulfill it. They knew where to find Christ, but didn't bother to act. I, I, I said this of them. They knew where to find him, but never bothered to seek him. That would probably apply to most of America. They know where to find God, but they don't ever seek him. That might even be some of you. You know exactly where and how to find God, but you don't seek him because you're not hungry enough. So I call them the knowledgeably indifferent. They had great knowledge, but they just didn't really care. They were proud to show off their knowledge of the scriptures and of the law and of the prophets. They knew all the prophecies of the Messiah. He's here now, but they're not lining up to go see him. And we have a lot of people in the body of Christ that are knowledgeably indifferent towards the move of God. They're knowledgeable of the scriptures, they're knowledgeable of sound doctrine, but they're just indifferent towards what God is doing. We don't want to be that personality type. So far, we got two bad ones. We don't be, want to be like the innkeeper, and we don't want to be like the Pharisees, the chief priests. I think the reason the Lord wore them out was he was offended they didn't show up to his birthday party. I think the Lord said, remember when I was three and you guys didn't bother? Yeah. This is for that, you brood of vipers, you snakes and scorpions. No, that's bad doctrine, but it does sound funny. <laughs> I'm sure his parents said, they never showed up, sweetie. They never showed up for your birthday. We don't like them. Our final personality type we find in Herod. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. This perplexed me when I saw this. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. Here you have three kings that have traveled for two years at great expense. They're delighted. They're excited. They share their excitement with a, a, an equal king. He's not excited. He's troubled. He's terrified. And the next part of your verse says, and all of Jerusalem with him. The city of peace the city who has all the prophecies and all the promises, the city where Christ will die, the city where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the city where Abraham offered Isaac as a type and shadow, they're troubled at this good news. They're not happy about it. They're not excited about it. They don't understand what the big deal is. They don't want to share in it. The good news that 400 years of wise men sought after, a king was terrified at, and the whole city with him, which I take to mean his leadership, his, his, his leaders, his secretaries, because there's going to be people there that are excited as well, but they're terrified. The glad tidings of peace on earth troubled him and all of Jerusalem. I call these the wicked insecure. How, why would a king be insecure? Why would a king be troubled that God had come to his prefecture? Why would a king who's supposed to be a king over Israel and a king over Jerusalem, why, he, why would he not rejoice that the law he claims to know is coming to pass in his season? 
but it troubles him. They seek to stamp God out. They seek to stamp out the message. They seek to stamp out the plan, the word, the man, the woman of God. They seek to stomp out the revival of God. This is what the wicked insecure do. We've got eight personalities here and this movement of God, this, the ultimate revival of all revivals, the word made flesh, it, it interacted with eight types of people and proved what people are made out of. Now, interestingly enough, this is Christmas Eve. As preachers, we talk about this being the CME crowd, Christmas, Mother's Day, Easter crowd. I am on a... a text chat with a bunch of pastors. One of my pastor friends calls this service tonight the Super Bowl of the church because this is when all the lukewarm, mediocre, don't know, don't care Christians come and he sees it evangelistically. But if you know where to find him tonight, you can find him in the same place Sunday morning and Sunday night. He's not a far off. He's close to all those that call out to him in sincerity you might find yourself in three of these personality types, the three bad types. I don't think the innkeeper made heaven. I don't think the chief priests and scribes made heaven. And we know Herod didn't make heaven. So if your personality is closer aligned to those, you ought to judge yourself and ask, why aren't you more like Mary or Joseph or Simeon? Why aren't you more like the shepherds? Why aren't you more like uh, the wise men who sacrificed so much just for one worship service? Can you imagine traveling for two years to one worship service? What a tremendous testimony. Are you like the sage? It's like Simeon. Are you childlike faith like Mary? Are you the righteous man of the word like Joseph? Or are you the oblivious busybody like the innkeeper? Are you humbly hungry like the shepherds? Maybe generationally hungry like the wise men? Or maybe you just know so much word you're not hungry for God anymore? Or maybe you're just wicked and insecure like Herod and his leaders? Whatever you are, the word of God will make it evident. And all you have to do is acknowledge it and say, Lord, help me. Help me be like these positive, God-fearing personality types in the nativity. Don't let me be like these bad characters. What a, I don't know. I think what a unique way of looking at the nativity story because we can take this principle and apply it to our life any day and every day to see where we stand. If someone comes to us pregnant with the move of God, do we say no time, no place? Or do we say, tell me more. What's God doing? Do we make it to Sunday night service or are we not interested. Do we have time in our busy life for Wednesday night service or are we just not interested? Do we have time for more of God than just Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter? Or are we just not interested? You don't know what you're missing out on. Amen.